So I'd like to begin to explore in more detail the development of equanimity. <clears throat> I'll, I'll speak for a little bit. Uh, then we'll do another guided practice. And then we'll have some time for questions and discussion before we break for lunch. And I'm guessing we might go a little bit over. Maybe we'll stop for lunch at 12.45 instead of 12.30 and still take a, take a full hour. So the development of equanimity happens on different levels. Um, it happens uh, on the, the broader level of our life in terms of the changes and the events that we experience over the course of our life, the ups and the downs, the gains and the losses. And so this is on a, on a gross level. The, we develop equanimity also on a more subtle and refined level in terms of our relationship with moment-to-moment -moment experience and uh, sensations in our body or other sensory experience, and, um, as well as in the relationships of our life. Each of these levels kind of informs the other. They're not separate. Uh, they sit together in kind of a mandala, you could say. Uh, but because we exist in time, and one thing needs to happen before another, uh, we'll start with the grosser level this morning. This afternoon, we'll look more at the moment-to-moment -moment level of the development of equanimity. And then tomorrow, we'll look at uh, relationships and uh, responding to events in our life. And by the end of the weekend, I think you'll see how each of these really supports the other. Uh, so we need to start somewhere. So let's start with a, with a kind of big, big picture in terms of our life. So as I was saying earlier this morning, equanimity is balance born of wisdom. So the cause of equanimity is seeing clearly, is understanding with wisdom. It's like if you're trying to open a jar and you keep trying harder and harder and harder and it's not opening and then you realize that you're turning the wrong way, <laughs> right? So it's that, it's that wisdom, that insight that understands, oh, it doesn't work this way. It actually works this way that allows us to be in relationship with our life differently. So what does wisdom understand that leads to equanimity? On the larger level of our life, wisdom understands that everything changes. That life is a series of events that come and go. There's a very powerful passage that occurs in many places in the early texts of the Buddhist tradition, where it's, the question is, what does a Buddha know that ordinary beings don't know? Interesting question, isn't it? What is it that's understood in what's known as enlightenment or awakening that a mind that is deluded does not know and understand? All that has the nature to arise 
has the nature to cease. Everything that has the nature to come into being has the nature to end. It's not that far away, is it? We know this. We know this intellectually, but do we deeply know it in our bones? There's a story I I heard about um, uh, out at Spirit Rock, um, where I teach regularly. They they used to hold retreats in Yucca Valley, uh, south of here. Large retreats, 80, 90, 100 people. And apparently on this one, and so at the meditation hall, um, everyone would leave their shoes outside, and there were no racks, so there'd be like this sea of shoes. So apparently on one retreat, someone stole some shoes. Someone came and stole the shoes while everyone was meditating. So there was a, there was a, a monastic, a monk, meditating on this retreat. And um, one, of, one of my mentors, Michelle McDonald, told, told me this story. Uh, that, you know, everyone comes out and like, you know, there are no shoes. Where are my shoes? Where are my shoes? And the monk comes out and looks and says, no shoes. And then just went on his business. <laughs> just like, you know, they come, they go. It's like, <laughs> that's the way things work in life. So the wisdom that comes from Dhamma practice is not intellectual. It's not about having more information or knowledge. It develops through careful observation by stepping back and observing, experiencing our life directly. And the wisdom, the learning that comes is very grounded, embodied, and down to earth. It's knowing which way the wind blows. So which way does the wind blow? In the Buddhist tradition, there's a teaching on what are called the eight worldly winds, called the lokadhamma, the the qualities of this world. And these are also known as the eight vicissitudes of life. And there, there are four different pairs of conditions that change throughout our life, that these are the winds that blow in all of our lives. Gain and loss praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, or sorrow and and joy. Yes. Gain and loss. We get things, things go our way. We get the job, you know, we get some money, we get some shoes. And loss, we lose the job, we lose the relationship, we lose some money. Someone walks off with our shoes, gain and loss, praise and blame. I see this all of the time in this role. Anyone who's, I mean, we all experience it, but particularly if you're in a role where you're speaking in front of people or you're doing something publicly, right? The same thing. Some people love it, some people hate it. It's inevitable. That's just the way things go, praise and blame. This is from the Buddha and the Dhammapada. They blame those who remain silent. They blame those who speak much. 
They blame those who speak in moderation. There are none in this world who are free from blame. So gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, which is just a generalized version of praise and blame, right? And then pleasure and pain or joy and sorrow. So these are the conditions of our life that are constantly changing. And it's said that the world revolves around these eight winds. They come and go in all of our lives. They blow through our lives. The image, one image that's used in the early texts is that the mind of a sage is like a great tree and the wind blows and the tree is not moved, just like that mountain that's not moved by the wind. So what happens ordinarily when we are met with gain and loss or praise and blame or pleasure and pain? We ordinarily get caught up in them, right? We get elated when things go our way or we get dejected and thrown off balance when they don't. So we, we get a new job, we get a promotion, a new relationship. It all seems so gripping in the moment we lose sight of that perspective that all that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Anything that comes into being will eventually pass. And this is not, it's not, to, this is not to say that we don't experience these things, that we're not fully present for our life, but we understand their nature. That delusion that says this is going to finally do it and is going to last forever, it's always going to be this way, that unseen assumption that we have is not present because we're seeing with clarity, with wisdom. So this is the way the Buddha puts puts it in the, the text where he offers this teaching. He says, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. These conditions that meet that people meet are impermanent transient and subject to change. One who is wise and mindful knows them and sees them as they are, subject to change. When an ordinary person meets with gain or praise or pleasure or fame, they do not reflect. This gain is impermanent, fragile, subject to change. They do not understand it as it really is. And therefore, gain obsesses their mind. They become attracted by gain and repelled by loss. So when we don't see it clearly, when we don't reflect, okay, this is subject to change. It's impermanent, fragile, temporary. Then our mind becomes obsessed. It becomes attracted and obsessed or our mind becomes repelled by that which we don't like. And then we start to spin. We get entangled. We get thrown off balance, and we create more difficulties and challenges for ourselves and others. So this is the Buddha talking about his own relationship with his disciples, saying that when I teach... Sometimes my disciples listen. They lend ear and they apply them. Sorry, when I teach, sometimes disciples don't listen. 
They don't lend ear. They don't try to understand or apply their minds to my instructions. He says, in this situation, the Tathagata, which is how the Buddha referred to himself, the Tathagata is not satisfied, feels no satisfaction, yet he dwells unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. Then there are those scenarios where some disciples do listen. They do lend ear, try to understand and apply their minds, and others don't listen. They do not lend ear, apply their minds, and try to understand. In this situation, the Tathagata is not satisfied, feels no satisfaction, is not dissatisfied, feels no dissatisfaction. Free from both satisfaction and dissatisfaction, he dwells in equanimity mindful and fully aware. Then there is the situation when disciples listen. They lend ear. They apply their minds, try to understand and follow the instructions. In this situation, the Tathagata is satisfied and feels satisfaction, yet he dwells unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. It's interesting, right? What I find so interesting about this text is that the Buddha, point, he says, I feel satisfied or dissatisfied, or sometimes I feel neither satisfied nor dissatisfied. Regardless, the mind remains equanimous, unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. So it's not that we don't feel things. It's not that we can't feel satisfied or dissatisfied, but do we get pulled around by it? Do we get attracted and repelled by the changing conditions of our life because we do not understand and see clearly as it is? This is subject to change, fragile, impermanent. So how do we learn to work with this teaching? on these eight worldly winds, these conditions that blow through all of our lives. So it's by keeping the heart open, by keeping our heart open to the joys and the sorrows, by actually allowing ourselves to feel that push and pull of being attracted and repelled, of being out of balance, that we develop equanimity, that we find that balance that sees clearly and understands This is subject to change, fragile, impermanent. Don't build your house on this, right? This is not a solid foundation to build something on. So I want to offer a few different tools, a few different ways to work with this teaching on the worldly winds, on the conditions of our life. And then we'll do a guided meditation, a practice with it. So the first and most fundamental aspect is stepping back and just noting what's happening. So just just trying to recollect this teaching, recognizing when we get something, when there's gain, stepping back and noting, okay, this is gain. That's what's happening. This is the worldly condition of gain. When there's loss, this is loss when there's praise, when there's blame, when there's sorrow or joy. That capacity to step back is an essential skill to develop in contemplative practice, 
to put a frame around something. And the tool of mental noting or labeling is very useful for that. It's that capacity of mind that recognizes what's happening and goes, oh, that's what this is, right? So to see when we, when we win, when, when, we, when there's a gain, instead of just being swept up in it, that there's some aspect of awareness that can step back and recognize, oh, this is gain, this is loss. And then the next step after, after the noting, the acknowledgement, the recognition of what's happening is to reflect with wisdom on the nature of things. This is the way it is. Things come and go. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. And this reveals the delusion that we think we can only have gain, praise, fame, and pleasure. That we can just get one side of the deal and avoid the other side, right? That's, that's, the, that's the delusion that we're all operating under. That if I just play my cards right, I'll only get the good half and I'll be spared the other stuff. That's just not how it works. You know? That's like only wanting to breathe in and never breathe out. Life doesn't work that way. You breathe in, then you breathe out. You know? I like to do this little demonstration. If I take my watch and I increase its potential energy, right? I raise it up. Now, if I let go of this object, how many people here in this room think it's going to stay where it is? Anyone? Okay. Anybody think it's going to float up? No. How many people expect it's going to fall? Right? Okay. Do we need to try it? No. We understand, right? That's the way gravity works. It goes up, it's going to come down. That's the way the worldly winds work. It goes up and it comes down. It's inevitable. It's just the way this world is built. When I was a kid, um, there was a park near our house. Very fortunate to have something like that nearby. Big open field and a little playground with a merry-go-round and something to climb on, some swings and a seesaw. I used to love going on the seesaw. Now sometimes, if you ever remember being on a seesaw, your partner would be a little mischievous. And while you're up in the air, they jump off, right? And if you were wise to it and you knew it was coming, you get your legs out so when the seesaw hits, you don't, you don't get that shock, right? You brace yourself. So developing wisdom is like this. We recognize that life is a seesaw, and when we're up, we know what's coming. <laughs> it's going to change. So if you're healthy right now, it's going to change. Sometimes it's temporary, and sometimes it's not. Health is a temporary condition. There are those who are sick, and there are those who are not yet sick. It's like a good, that's the way it is. It's a good friend of mine in, li- in, uh, in my life, a childhood friend, 
who's um, he's a carpenter and a drummer. It's a different field, but he's a very wise guy. He likes to say there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who have lived through tragedy, and there are those who have yet to live through tragedy. That's an understanding of the worldly winds. But we keep forgetting. This is called ignorance. And ignorance is not just like, I didn't know. It means ignoring. We ignore the truth. We choose not to pay attention to this aspect of reality that we all know. So how much does, does our happiness, our sense of well-being, or our sense of identity depend on these conditions, depend on the content of our life, on what we get, if we get the upside or the downside, you know, how good we feel about ourselves, how we evaluate our sense of self-worth or success in life, based on external conditions that are to a large degree beyond our control and that are just changing. So without equanimity, when things don't go the way we want, when the seesaw goes the other side, the mind wobbles. It spins, it reverberates, it gets attracted and repelled. So wisdom grows through paying attention, stepping back and recognizing, okay, this is a condition. It's temporary. And then understanding the nature of things. This comes and it goes. As it says in the text, one reflects wisely and sees it as it is, properly with wisdom. We don't need to take stuff so personally. We can understand it's just their nature to come and go. There's a famous Thai forest meditation master that many of you have probably heard of named Ajahn Chah. He's my my grandfather. He's my great-grandfather in the Dhamma, my teacher's teacher's teacher. Um, So he had a teaching. Somebody gave him a very nice uh, glass, a crystal glass, and he would hold up the glass to his disciples, and he would say, you see this glass? I'm quite fond of this glass. I like it. It's very pleasing to me. It was a gift. It's very beautiful. He says, to me, this glass is already broken. All that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. There's that understanding. It's in its nature to disintegrate, to change. So his heart had already let go of it. It's just a matter of time. So this is not like a mental trick. This is not like some cognitive reframe that we can kind of like wriggle out of things by saying like, oh, it's impermanent, it will change, and now I don't have to feel this. This this process of reflection is a way of aligning our heart with the truth so that there is a felt shift in our relationship with things that recognizes, that understands, oh, yes, of course. Right, I know this. This is part of life. I've had some, uh, some health issues since I was in my early 20s. And one, one of the health issues I've dealt with is a digestive disorder that can be quite painful at times, um, various periods of my life. And uh, so I've spent some time at some, some of the monasteries. 
uh, in my training as a practitioner. And because of this dietary, because of this uh, intestinal issue, there's certain foods that I can and can't eat. And so at the monastery, everyone kind of knew, like, oh, Nyaniko can eat this and he can't eat that, my monastic name. And so uh, one time, one of, the other, one of the lay residents at the monastery came to me, this is in England, and uh, asked me, said, you know, I'm, I'm curious, if you don't mind my asking, what is your affliction? This is the kind of English way of talking about your you know, disease or sickness. What, what is your affliction? It was interesting. I kind of paused. I said, you know, I don't think of it that way. It's just a condition. So to see things from that lens, instead of what I want and what I don't want, is just changing conditions in our life. So the first step of working with this is to get some perspective, to recognize, okay, this is gain, this is loss, this is pleasure or pain or praise or blame, and then to reflect with wisdom on the nature of things. This is subject to change, fragile, impermanent. And then to observe our relationship, to see the reactivity in our mind, if the mind is repelled or attracted, to bring mindfulness to that experience, to widen the awareness, to soften the heart, to really notice and observe the mind's relationship with things, to make space for the reactivity, to not cut off from it, but to actually bear with it so that the heart can learn how to be in balance. So we can notice our mind's response in life to the small changes, to the little ups and downs, the many successes and failures, the losses, and work there. Like when things change or when they don't go our way, notice how your heart responds. You know, is there that sense of understanding? Like, okay, yeah, this is how it goes. Or is there the resistance inside? And that resistance, that's feedback. That's a teaching. The world is showing us that we're expecting this to stay where it is. We're trying to turn that jar the wrong way. That friction is feedback. It's saying your heart is not understanding the way things work right now. So study that. Learn there. And so we can use our practice to really feel the contraction, the resistance, and bring awareness to bear on that experience. So a Burmese teacher by the name of Sayada Utejaniya, who says, don't try to maintain equanimity. Only try to maintain awareness. Because we can't control whether or not the heart is balanced, Right? It's not up to us whether we're, we're attracted or repelled, whether we're spinning out or not. But if we can maintain awareness, if we can bring mindfulness into that experience and observe it, really feel it, then equanimity can grow. So it takes a real radical willingness to feel things, to develop equanimity, to really observe the resistance of the heart Every time the mind pushes or pulls and gets caught, 
to relax, to soften, to widen, and to see where am I clinging, where am I holding on, and to just be with those layers of resistance. And they happen on all different levels, just even on the, on the, the grossest level intellectually, of fighting against reality to much more subtle or deeply embedded layers in the heart and the mind that don't want to accept the way things are. So stepping back, acknowledging, okay, this is what's happening, reflecting with wisdom on the nature of things, feeling the resistance, bringing awareness to bear, Staying with that process, allowing the heart to learn from the feedback, from that friction of suffering. And then the last aspect is sometimes just zooming out, remembering the long view, the wider perspective, the bigger picture. You know, in the course of my whole life, how much is this going to matter? Or when I'm gone, when my life is over, A hundred years from now, will this matter? Joseph likes to use the analogy of Genghis Khan. There was a time when he was the most feared person in Asia and Europe. You know, one of the largest empires and kingdoms in the whole planet in history. How many of us think about him today? When was the last time you thought about Genghis Khan? Right? Where does it go? So the long view of time, of geological time, everything comes and goes. I went um, out to a place in the Sierras uh, where there's some trees called the bristlecone pines, thousands of years old, 2,000, 3,000 years old. They're small not like the redwoods, because they grow, they grow very, very, very slowly, and their wood is very, very dense. It's quite humbling to be with a living being that's been on the planet for thousands of years. It puts things in perspective. You know? All of the little anxieties and worries that we have, even the big anxieties and worries, you know, the finances or the diagnosis, It's like when we zoom out and remember the long view, in the end, it's just the way it is. You know, in the end, everything's just unfolding. And this doesn't mean we don't have preferences, this doesn't mean we give up our values. It just means our relationship changes. So I'll tell you one more story, and then we'll do a practice. Uh, This is a story from Michelle McDonald, who's a senior Vipassana teacher. She lives in Hawaii. And she was driving to the airport late one night. And that was a terrible rainstorm. And uh, they had closed a number of exits on the highway to get to the airport. And so she's driving to catch a flight. And 
in that kind of way that we can all do sometimes when she sees the exit is closed, there's that sense of like, no, it can't be closed because I, I have to get to the airport, right? It doesn't apply to me. Like, there's got to be another way to get to the airport. You know, so she keeps going to the next exit and it's closed. And so finally she gets to an exit that she can take, pouring rain, late at night, and uh, she's going down a hill. And as she's going down the hill, the car starts hydroplaning. Bottom of the hill, red light. So in that moment, time gets very, st- very slow. Everything slows down. And she says, her practice kicked in. All of those years of training. The mind became very still and peaceful. She says, I clearly had a preference (laughs) in that moment. And it was completely obvious. It's totally out of my control. And there was no fear, no clinging. The mind was not attached to the preference because it understood this is not up to me. She said her first thought was, I hope I don't kill anyone. May there be no one at the, bo- at, the, at the bottom. And then her second thought was, I hope I don't hurt myself. As it turned out, it was fine. There was no car. She spun out and hit an embankment. Everything was OK. So it's not that we don't have preferences. It's just that we understand so much is not up to us. So there isn't that clinging to the preference. So when we meet with gain or loss or pleasure or pain, it's not that we don't care, but what's our relationship with it? Do we have that insight, that understanding that recognizes it's not up to me? And in that acceptance, in that clear seeing of the reality, the acceptance of the way things are, there's peace. The less equanimity there is, the more suffering there will be. The less equanimity, the more there is resistance and control, attachment and aversion, and then we suffer because there's that friction with reality. The more equanimity there is, the more the heart lets go, and the more peace there is. So I'd like to do a guided practice with this, reflecting on some events in our life and seeing if we can allow them to pass through and come to this place of recognition, this place of understanding that everything comes and goes, and in the end, here we are. After all said and done, we all come back to just being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.